Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder of the Equality Regulatory Vietnam, and I and thrilled about this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. My guest is Allison Komiyama with the Not Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies, and we're talking 510K. Folks, you got to listen to this one. Allison is a former FDA reviewer and has several tips about ways to make your 510K a little bit better and improve your chances of success through the FDA process. So sit back, relax. And listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, this is John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru, and I am very excited to welcome you to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. I have Allison Komiyama. Allison is with Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies, a former FDA reviewer and expert in regulatory submissions, quality submissions, and biocompatibility. Allison is really wicked smart. She has received her PhD in neuroscience from Stanford, her BA in molecular and cell biology from the University of California, Berkeley, and she received her regulatory affairs certification in 2014. Here's something else that I want you to know about Allison. Allison used to work at FDA as a reviewer in the Office of Device Evaluation, and she acted as a lead reviewer and counsel on 510K submissions, on IDE, investigational device applications, as well as pre-market approval submissions, PMAs. She's an expert when it comes to biocompatibility. With acknowledged regulatory consultants, Allison works with companies all over the world, from that small two-person operation to large firms with over 40,000 employees. All kinds of device as well. Orthopedics, bone void, hospital devices, urological devices, dental implants, in vitro diagnostics, wearable technology, mobile medical applications, neurostimulating devices, Allison, welcome to the podcast, and 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 just I'm so excited to talk to you today about 510Ks. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk to you about 510Ks. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. So I want to just jump right into this because you know I'm kind of a, a design control regu- uh, risk management nerd, and and I dabble, <laughs> kind of a nerd, I guess, when it comes to quality systems too. But that 510K piece, that 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 critical submission that so many companies rely on to getting to the market and through the regulatory hurdles. And that's a pretty important piece. And I think it's safe to say you're definitely an expert in that space. And I'm sure that people are calling you all the time because of your experience with the FDA. So talk to us a little bit about what you do and how you help companies with, with that critical piece. Sure. So I would say most of my work is with 510K submissions. So those are the pre-market notifications, like you mentioned. You know, at FDA, probably about 50% of the devices on the market are uh, 510K cleared. So you have about 40% that are class one devices and then about 5%, 5 to 10% that are PMA, so class three devices. So most of the things that FDA reviews are going to be 510Ks, yeah. at least in the in the office device evaluations. I mean, I, I mean, that's a crazy statistic. I mean, and when you were at FDA, give me a sense for for how many 510Ks you got to be part of either as lead reviewer or as a as consult uh, on on a, a, a submission. Sure. So probably 
20 to 30 anywhere. As you mentioned, some of these were going to be lead reviewer submissions where I would be the the main point person for a specific submission. And other times uh, I would be consult. So sure. the bio, biocompatibility consult frequently would yeah. be uh, on my plate to, to review. Yeah. And, and I guess it might be helpful to, to explain to our audience a little bit about the 510K because I think there might be some conventional wisdom out there that I send it to the FDA and it lands on somebody's desk or maybe it gets passed around from one reviewer's desk to the next until, you know, it kind of gets down the food chain, so to speak. But I don't think people have a real appreciation for for what FDA does once they get that submission. So if you can spend a minute or two kind of explaining that, that might be helpful. Sure. So after you send your submission to the agency, it uh, goes upstairs. So the document control center is actually downstairs in the bowels of building 66. And it goes upstairs to the branch manager, or I'm sorry, the branch chief, and they decide who it's going to go out to depending on workload in the, in the sure. branch at that time. Sure. Um, at that time, you know, the reviewer will go through the re- uh, refuse to accept checklist, which is a new checklist, uh, new as of a couple years ago now, uh, and make sure that all of the components are in the 510K that they have asked for in uh, the guidance document. So they'll, you know, within 15 days, they'll get back to the sponsor or the medical device manufacturer who's submitted this 510K and we'll let them know, you know, are you ac- is, the, is the file accepted or not? Uh, once it's accepted, then the lead reviewer will farm out the different components of the submission if, if that's necessary. So if there's, let's say, an animal study, they might uh, ask one of the consults that's a veterinarian at the agency to review the animal study. Uh, if there's biocompatibility testing, they'll have a biologist uh, review the biocompatibility data. So. Sure, sure. And, and I, I have a, a whole list of things I want to kind of chat with you about. And you mentioned one of the things that I was hoping to, to spend a minute or two about, maybe five minutes, I don't know, this re- refuse to accept policy. I, I mean, I know it's been out there now for a few years, and I think industry is pretty familiar with that now. But I think many are still probably looking at that as a new thing. And what is it? And well, I don't like it and, and all that sort of thing. So I'm just curious what your thoughts and opinions are about that refuse to accept policy. Do you think it's a good thing? And and if so, why? <laughs> sure. So I think when they rolled it out, uh, it, you know, FDA, you know, the reviewers weren't huge fans of it and neither were the folks filling, you know, right. uh, submitting the 510K. I think overall it has actually been a, been a good thing. I think it's reduced the amount of time that uh, the agency spends reviewing, you know, has it in-house. Uh-huh. Um, and also you know, it really allows the the industry or the sponsor to to know exactly what FDA wants. It's improved the quality, I would say, of the submissions that that FDA is seeing. So, I, I you know, overall, I think it's been a good thing. Does it add additional time and legwork for the reviewers? Absolutely, because it's a yeah. typically a ten. Uh, I think it's a ten-page document that yeah. uh, they have to go through and search for the things that are in. You know the that that's in the submission. My recommendation to anyone submitting a 510k is to include that RTA checklist, fill it out, and then also fill out the page numbers and where each component can be found. That really saves some time for the reviewer, and you can often get accepted within the 15 days a lot sooner than you would if you if you just send it into FDA for yeah. them to figure out. Folks, that's that's tip number one that you're hearing from Allison, <laughs> and, and that is to fill out a refuse to accept checklist. 
providing a decoder ring, so to speak, for, for that lead reviewer and citing specific pages where those answers to those questions can be found. That's going to help a lot. And, and I, you know, and I can corroborate that, that advice. I had, a, it's been a couple of years ago that I did two submissions uh, a few months apart. One, I did not submit that my version of the refuse to accept checklist. I had a lot of comments and questions and discussions with the lead reviewer. The second submission that I put together a couple of months after, I did provide that RTA checklist, decoder ring, citing page numbers, and how uh, where the answers to those questions were. And and let's just say the second time went much smoother than the first time. So it's a good tip. All right, so uh, let's get into a little bit more about about uh, some domain expertise and, and biocompatibility. And I'll throw in a couple other. Uh, pieces into that as well. Once upon a time, in a 510k, a, a, someone, a, a company submitting their 510k used to be allowed to make sort of uh, what many refer to as I promise statements. I promise that I'll do this. I'll promise that I'll do biocompatibility testing. I promise that I'll do electrical safety testing. I promise that I'll do sterilization validation. Can you get a sense of, of where the agency currently stands on, on these I promise statements? Sure. So they've definitely backed away from that. I would say that the best example of that is with sterilization validation, and that's made clear in the refuse to accept checklist. So they make it clear that sterilization validation should be done before you even submit the 510K. And while they don't need the reports, they state that, you know, no need to submit the sterilization validation report, but you need to state how it was done and make sure that it, it's been completed before they will grant a uh, clearance. So I would say, you know, especially for biocompatibility, they're going to want to see the, the reports in your submission uh, right. for electrical safety as well. So, you know, I think where FDA used to allow a lot to be captured by your quality system and say, you know, once the FDA inspector goes in and looks at your quality system to see if you've done all those validation uh, tests, you know, they're now saying, no, we want to, we want to make sure you guys are doing these ahead of time before you go to market. I think a lot of the issue was that companies were saying these, I promise statements and then, oh, you know, conveniently forgetting that they had made those promises in their submission, Yeah. Uh, you know, which is a little, a little scary, but um, yeah, now they're, they're definitely wanting that information ahead of time. Yeah. And, and I think that's just a good business practice. I mean, and, and I, and I think those of you who know me and, and I'm kind of a design control nerd and, and like it floors me, Allison. I, I talk to sometimes companies who they they get five ten k clearance, and then they get a hold of me or read something that I wrote or what have you, and they say, "Hey, uh, we got our five ten k clearance, and we want to go to market next week." But these things that you you write about design controls, we didn't do any of that, and we don't have a quality system. And I'm just like freaking out, I'm like, how in the world could you put together a five ten k without design controls? Like that just floors me. But but it happens, and. I think sometimes the mentality is, oh, let's get the clearance first and then we'll, we'll play catch up later. And, you know, I guess that's my tip. Folks, you're not going to play catch up later. It's best to do it as you're doing it, not, not after the fact, because it's no time like the present. It's just, it's just going to make good business sense. Once you get that clearance letter, you want to run fast to market. You don't want to have to do a bunch of cleanup in order to go to market. And you certainly don't want to roll the dice and hope that when FDA shows up, they're not going to find the things you didn't do because they will. That's their job. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And once you've registered and listed your device, you know, if you get clearance and then you register your company, um, 
FDA could show up the next day. I mean, they really could uh, come in and, and audit your quali- quality system right away. So, I mean, for um, devices that require a PMA, part of the the approval process is FDA will come and inspect you before you actually get approval. But for 510Ks, they grant the clearance first, and then uh, then they'll come and do the inspection probably within the year after you register. Right, right. Yeah, it's going to happen, folks. I mean, if, if, you're, if you have a class two, class three device, you, you might as well accept that you will be subject to an FDA inspection. It's just going to happen. I mean, I doesn't matter if you're that two-person company or that 40,000-person company. You, you, it's all about the devices that you're bringing to market. And class two, class three, FDA has a mandate that they will do inspections. I believe it's every two years, right? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. So count on it. And, and we have uh, Greenlight has plenty of content on how to prepare for an FDA inspection. And if you happen to have one and get 43 observations or a warning letter, uh, we have templates and, and guides to help you through that process as well. And, and I'm sure, Allison, you probably do a fair amount of work with companies who are either preparing for or dealing with the aftermath of an FDA inspection as well, right? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, that's part of the game. Yeah. I mean, it's not the fun part. I mean, I'm I'm guessing you're like me that I'd rather help somebody on the front end and make sure they have everything prepared rather than dealing with it after the fact, right? Yeah, it's definitely an agency that you don't want to ask uh, forgiveness instead of permission. I would say you typically want to play by the rules and get things done ahead of time and, and have everything squared away before you start selling this to people that are going to have your device implanted or used in or on their body. I mean, that's... yeah. yeah. And, and, it's the right thing to do. <laughs> and and that just, you know, obviously I have a few things that we're going to cover today, but I just triggered an, another thought. I see this trend. I've, I've noticed it lately that there's a lot of, a lot of interest in like first in human studies. And, and I, you, when I read your, your brief bio, you did a lot of work with IDEs as well, but are you seeing that as well? Where a lot of companies are, are really anxious to move towards that first in human type of study? Yes and no. I think it depends on the device um, and especially how, you know, what FDA's opinions of it are. <laughs> right. You know, I think if there's if there's a, a definite need and FDA is is really enthusiastic, they will often push for that as well. So, right. yeah, that's the past year or two, that's been a hot topic. Yeah, but it's, it, it's still the case where the majority of devices that go that 510k route, they, they don't need actual human clinical to get clearance. That is true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but most sure- of these, you, your, your goal is to demonstrate substantial equivalence. So oftentimes that will uh, just include performance testing. And as you know, we talked about earlier, biocompatibility testing, right. um, electrical safety testing and whatnot. Right. And we talked about the biocompatibility testing a, a little bit about the I promise. You know, there's um, what, what kind of advice would you give to a company that's using a material or that, that have a known history of use for very similar applications? They can get their hands on some level of biocompatibility testing. It may not be conducted by them on their product manufactured with their equipment. And so on. is there any weight to leveraging history of use or, or prior biocompatibility? Do, do you get any credit for any of that? Absolutely. So it helps a lot if you're if you have a predicate that's your own and the material is already being used in uh, or you know a similar materials being used uh, that that you want in your device. Um, but your question was, you know, if you have a new material, uh, FDA just came out with another guidance document on how to use the ISO ten nine nine three standards, which are you know, the biocompatibility 
standards uh, that are very, very widely known among biocompatibility experts. They, you know, I, I would start there. Uh, oftentimes, it really depends on the material. So if it's something, you know, that's a polymer, or let's say it's a stainless steel or something that's been around for forever um, in medical device language, then, you know, you might not need the full battery of biocompatibility tests. If you're looking at a new material, new formulation, something that, um, you know, that's, that's cutting edge, you're definitely going to be looking at uh, additional biocompatibility testing, depending on the uh, contact, as well as the duration of contact with the patient. Right. And Allison, I get, I get asked quite often, those types of questions on biocompatibility. So is it okay with you if I send those inquiries your way? <laughs> Absolutely. That's All right. Fine. So if you have biocompatibility questions, uh, not to fill your inbox full of those, but uh, contact Allison Komiyama. She'll be happy <laughs> to help you with that. But uh, all right, let's talk a little bit about um, design controls. I mentioned that briefly. So do you have a, I'm sure you can, can relate how design controls map to a 510K. Do you, do you have some tips or advice to our listening audience about design controls and 510Ks? I know it's a loaded question. Yes, that's all, yeah, no, I, I would say make sure you, make sure you uh, have a system in place that works for your company. I think, you know, as I, as I said, you said earlier, I've worked with small companies and large companies. I think it's, it really depends on the device that you're designing and you just want to make sure that everyone, uh, you know, every team member is on board and sort of understands why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and, you know, make sure that the testing makes sense, um, in-house or, you know, that you really want to, you want to go to FDA with, uh, the best validation reports that you can and right. want to make sure that, uh, you know, there's nothing in there that, uh, would raise a red flag and, and really bring in new questions of safety or efficacy. Cause those are triggers for FDA or for the reviewer to say, hang on a second, we might need additional testing. So, right. uh, I mean, the ideal situation is that you, you've gone through design freeze, you've, you know, tested the final finished device. And I think, you know, that's a, that's an FDA term they use quite liberally of, you want to make sure you've done all testing on the final finished device. That means that if it's sterilized, um, before use that you want to make sure that's sterilized before you've tested it. So, uh, you know, you don't want to give F FDA any reasons to, um, say this, you know, this testing is not useful because you didn't test the final device. So that would be my, my best advice for that. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, correct what I miss or misstate, but translation folks do your design controls, capture your user needs, your design inputs, your design outputs, and your design verification activities, conduct all of your design reviews, provide the substantial evidence, objective evidence to demonstrate the device is safe and, and substantially equivalent to a predicate device. It, like I said, at least through design verification, at least in my experience, design validation may be something that's kind of going in parallel with, with a 510K review. And that design validation piece oftentimes gets at how that product is used in the actual use environment anyway. So sometimes that may or may not become part of that submission, but definitely capture all of your design control activities as you're going through this, because that evidence is key to your 510K. Absolutely. All right. So I've had uh, a lot of experiences 
some reviewers are different than others. I mean, they're people, right? Every every reviewer <laughs> is a human. I mean, I think that's key for our audience to realize: FDA reviewers are humans. <laughs> yeah, they haven't they haven't figured out how to make a, a robot <laughs> reviewer yet. But right. um, yeah, at the end of the at the end of the day, you know, your reviewer is is a person, and they are you know they care about the safety of your device, and they want to make sure that they are not only protecting. Uh, public safety, but also promoting it. So they, you know, they really do want to get these technologies on the market. Um, they're not trying to fight you or, or keep your device uh, from being marketed. It's just they want to make sure it's safe before it goes out. I mean, the job of the FDA reviewer, they, there's awesome responsibility that goes with that because an FDA reviewer is is the from a 510k perspective is is really that that last that last stop before that product can go to market. I mean, think about the the impact of that, folks. That FDA reviewer has a lot of pressure to make sure that the information that you provided as part of that 510K substantially corroborates that your product is safe and that it's not gonna hurt people, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, exactly. did you feel pressure as a, as a reviewer? I mean, I'm sure that probably sunk in quite a bit while you were reviewing all these biocompatibility studies and, and other content of 510Ks. How, how did that feel as a reviewer? Did you feel a lot of pressure? Yeah, there is pressure to it. I think, you know, you want to make sure that at the end of the day, if something that you reviewed um, had a recall, or let's say, you know, I, I, I did a full biocompatibility consult for a device that had a new material and a couple of years later, it you know they find out that it's causing tumors. Let's say um, the if it's an implant, you know that's that's pretty heavy. That's you, you know you sure. definitely want to say, well, this is you know here's the evidence that I was given, and you know this is this is how I did my review. So I mean internally, the reviewer will go through and fill out an, a complete memo on how they uh, did the review, and so it has to make sense. Uh, once it goes to the branch chief and then up to upper management um, on why you're going to clear something. You know, if right. you find something substantially equivalent, you have to uh, justify it. So the company not only has to justify it to the reviewer, but then the reviewer also has to justify it within their their memo. Right. And I'm sure the, the opposite is also true. There's probably been several cases where you can, as a reviewer, say, look at a device that's having a positive impact on life and maybe saving lives in some cases. And you can say, yeah, I was the FDA reviewer on that, that product. I'm sure that that feeling is pretty awesome too. Absolutely. I think that's, that's the exciting stuff when you really see, uh, you know, a positive impact from a, a new type of device that might be released or, you know, I, I think also with, um, I, you know, I know this isn't the, the topic for today, but for de novo applications, which are, you know, typically uh, would be pushed into a class three regulation, but based on the fact that, you know, it might not be a life sustaining or life supporting device, it might get reclassified into a class one or class two um, standing. And those devices, I mean, you can, if you Google de novo FDA, you can find a list of all the devices that are coming out that are, that are completely new, which is yeah. pretty exciting. I mean, and, and I think, the work that the FDA has done on on the de novo side of things, I, I, a lot of people I talk to still have the horror story from the the de novo of times past. But sure, yeah. I mean de, de novo today is FDA has uh, to their credit has done a great job 
making that a viable vehicle for, for these products that don't have a clear regulatory path. So folks, check that out. If you, if you don't think your product has a clear regulatory path, it is possibly a good avenue for you to explore. Absolutely. And Allison, I'm guessing you help people at the Novo work too, right? Yes, I do. All right. So uh, I'll also be sure to get a hold of Allison Komiyama. So one last question that I can think of or topic to talk about is, is uh, what are the biggest mistakes that you see either today uh, helping people put together their 510k or from before as a reviewer? What are the biggest mistakes that you see with, with 510k submissions? So I'll, occasionally get a 510k that someone said, well, I've pieced it together. We just want you to look at it and, you know, give us your feedback. Um, I would say probably the number one would be that the indications for use statement doesn't match throughout the entire submission. So it might, you know, in your labeling, it might be, uh, you know, one, uh, one indication for use. And then then the IFU statement page and the submission is completely different, or maybe it's only a couple words off, but the reviewer is, very, you know, they're keenly aware that this is often a mistake. So I would just make sure, you know, make sure your IFU statement matches throughout. Um, I guess the other thing is to just really follow the guidance document. You know, there's a a 510k uh, format guidance document that really walks you through what components do the reviewers want your submission in. So, you know, follow that and also follow the refuse to accept guidance. I think, you know, if you don't follow those, then you're prone to lots of mistakes and, right. and a slower submission or a slower review time for your submission. Right. And, and just that simple piece of the indications for use, if it's not word for word verbatim, every spot where that's listed in your, your submission, that's a reason to be uh, refused and kicked back to you from, from FDA. Exactly. So you'll be refused and sent back to day zero. So once you make those corrections and resubmit it, you start right back um, on their clock. So they have 90 days for their entire review process, but you go back to their day zero. So it just adds more time. And yeah. Well, you know, I just thought of another thing that I'm sure is is probably a question that you get asked all the time is, Allison, how long is it going to take me to get get my 510k cleared through the FDA. <laughs> sure. So how do you answer um, that question? I know. And you know, I always hate it when consultants say, Oh, it depends, but this is a perfect example of it depends. You know, I, I it really depends on the type of device and it also depends on the branch you're submitting it to. Um, it can depend on the reviewer that you get, unfortunately. But uh, I would say on average, an FDA has really set goals on how long uh, they want the entire review process to last. Um, so it's right around 125 at the moment um, for the entire Office of Device Evaluation. Uh, I would say some of the... Days, right. What's that? 125 days, right? 125 days. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh depends on the branches I said. So some branches are, um, have a little longer review, average review time. Um, so it, I would say anywhere from the fastest I've gotten one done is 34 days. And I don't even want to tell you the longest one, but, uh, yeah, yeah. it usually has to do with testing. If they didn't do the correct testing ahead of time, um, FDA will send it back and say, provide additional testing. You have 180 days to, you know, supply our a response to our deficiency list. Yeah, I, I usually, and when I'm asked that question, I usually give the answer. It depends, and then I follow it up with, uh, "Well, my experience is somewhere between six and eleven months." So it just, it just, there's a lot, large variation, and there's a lot of factors at play, and you can't predict what questions are going to happen. You can't predict 
what competitor products are doing or not doing from a, a product performance standpoint. And unfortunately, folks, sometimes you are subject to what your competitor did or didn't do and the issues that their product has in the marketplace. And you may have to do additional activities to ensure that your product is safe, even if your competitor didn't. That's a great point. I would definitely look at uh, if there are any recent recalls within your product code. So if your device predicates have a recent recall, you probably are going to face uh, some questions once FDA gets their hands on your 510K. So uh, that's a good thing to consider ahead of time. Yeah. And so, Allison, I appreciate you being the guest on today's episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. I do want to let folks know how to get a hold of you. So, Allison Komiyama, it's really how it's spelled, but or spelled like it sounds, and that's K-O-M-I-Y-A-M-A. You can find her on LinkedIn. You can find her on her company's website, Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies, and that's acknowledge-rs.com. Allison, anything else that you want to, to share with our listeners before we wrap up today's episode? No, that's it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to add one more thing. Allison, you and I are preparing to do a, a webinar on the topic of 510Ks later in the month of August. So that's going to happen on, on I think we've got a confirmed date of August the 23rd, right? Yes, we do. Looking forward to it. All right. So uh, below in the, when you listen to this and below the, the text, there will be a link to, to direct you to where to sign up for that webinar. So it's going to be exciting. Allison's going to tell us how to get your clearance in 30, what do you say, 35 days? Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. Uh, I, uh, uh, kidding, folks. <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, Allison, you would never make that claim. But Allison will be pr providing a lot of tips and pointers that are going to be helpful for, for you as you are preparing that 510K. So be sure to check that out and, and click the link to sign up in the text below and the, in the, in the blog post. So Allison, again, thank you for being our guest. And folks, this has been John Spear, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru. If you need a software solution to help you manage your quality management system, help you manage your design controls that are going to go into your 510K, help you manage your risk management, go to Greenlight.guru, click the link to request a demo, and one of our sales team members will be happy to chat with you and walk you through that process. Again, thank you for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.